you seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me again to our passage. It's Matthew 28. If you're using the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you, you can find our text on page 828. Uh, those Pew Bibles, we have lots of them. So if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. Uh, that is our uh, gift to you. Today we're in the entire passage, the entire chapter of Matthew 23. And this is one of those moments. This chapter is one of those moments. You would know where you were, if you were living back then, when you heard this for the first time. It's one of those moments. Hey, mom or dad, where were you? When Jesus spoke the words of Matthew 23, he's come to the end of his time in the temple. We know that he came a couple chapters ago in that triumphal entry, the last week of his life into Jerusalem. He's come to the temple. He's driven out the money changers. He's cursed the fig tree. He's been challenged by the leaders, the authorities, the officials in the temple, back and forth, sort of mild conversation, getting a little more serious, a a little more tense as we go. Last week, he makes the audacious claim that he is the king, the son of David, and the son of God. And then we get to this. And these are the last words that Jesus will have in the temple. It's the last words he'll have to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. If you look ahead at chapter 24, verse 1, it tells us he left the temple and it's going to get dark in those next couple chapters. First, let's see our warnings this morning. Matthew 23, would you follow along with me, reading the entirety of the chapter. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. 
But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, The outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you Desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we have sung, we now pray that you would speak, O Lord. That you would speak clearly these hard words of truth and you would open 
by the power of your spirit, our hearts to believe. I pray this very day that you would bear the fruit of faith in each and every one of us as we hear your words in and through the prophet Jesus, your son and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some of you may have heard the name of a young entrepreneur, Elizabeth Holmes. About a decade ago, she was a young woman who founded in California uh, a medical company that was going to revolutionize and change uh, the medical industry. She promised and she declared uh, that she could do blood tests unlike any that had ever been done before. The old way of doing it, an old uh, vial of blood, a lot sent off to a lab, would take weeks and lots of money and you would eventually get some results back. Well, she was going to change everything. She promised that with one little drop, with one little pinprick, she could run hundreds and hundreds of tests in a machine in your own home. You never had to go to the doctor. You never had to go to the lab. And the best part is you didn't even have to wait. The results would come back to you in hours, if not minutes. Her company took off. It became the greatest startup uh, in Silicon Valley right, in the last decade. She became a billionaire on these promises. She had contracts with leading pharmacies, with leading uh, supermarkets. She even had a contract, supposedly, with the U.S. government to send her little machines off to the, the ends of the earth where, uh, where our soldiers are. There's only one problem. None of it worked. It was all a big scam. Now, she thought it was going to work. She promised it was going to work. But as the years went by, as millions and millions of investors' dollars flowed into this little company in Silicon Valley, she built up a house of cards. And when one little investigative reporter came poking around, the whole thing crashed down. Years of lies. Years of hypocrisy. Millions and millions of dollars poured down the drain. And even worse, there were people, victims, who had been led astray one way or another by these faulty blood tests. If that sounds bad, Matthew 23 is a whole lot worse. What we have in Matthew 23 is hypocrisy on a level far beyond that little drop of blood a decade ago in California. What we have here are layers and layers of empty religion. We have leaders pretending, showing off, acting like they have everything together with their religion and with their God. And when Jesus comes poking around, what happens? It's empty. There's nothing there. What he shows us in this text is that it's not just this moment in history where there's this hypocrisy around this external religion. He shows us it's a cycle that's gone on almost since the beginning of the world. That there has always been hypocrisy, there has always been empty religion. And Jesus and God here has had enough. The message for us this morning is break the empty cycle of religion and seek the Lord while he may be found. There is an urgency in Matthew 23 that we have not seen yet in, in a year's worth of sermons in Matthew's gospel. Seek the Lord while he may be found now. Break the cycle of empty 
religion. I want you to see the emptiness of the religion in this text, in this chapter. I'm going to show you three stages in this cycle of empty religion. Our first stage uh, in verses 1 to 12 uh, is the warnings of the poisonous root. There is a poisonous root at the heart of the, the religion that Jesus is confronting, and his first 12 verses are full of warnings about that poisonous root. Look at verse 12. It sets the stage for the first section of the chapter. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We've seen this a number of times, haven't we? You've heard a number of sermons on how we should uh, avoid exalting ourselves and pursue Jesus's path of humility. What he does now is something interesting. You see in the first verse, he now turns and he speaks to the disciples and the crowds about the Pharisees and leaders standing right there, okay? He's talked to them, he's conversed with them, and then he's going to turn and he's going to talk to everybody else about those guys standing right there. He's warning the crowds, the disciples, and you and me about this poisonous root. And the poisonous root is exalting ourselves. It's pride. It's lifting up ourselves, exalting ourselves. Who does this? Jesus identifies in verse 2, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. They sit on Moses' seat. This just means they take to themselves the place of teaching authority uh, within the temple. And they say lots of things. They make up lots of rules and laws. And they teach a whole lot of stuff. And Jesus says to the disciples and the crowds about these Pharisees right here, he says, do what they say and not what they do. Now, parents, you've probably said this to your kids, right? Because <laughs> we have good advice for our kids and somehow we never follow the same advice we give our kids, right? <laughs> so sometimes we tell our kids, look, just ignore, I'm not, I'm not a great parent, but I'm trying to say good things, just do the good things I say, right? Jesus is sort of saying that about the Pharisees, except the rest of the chapter, he will go and he will blow up all of the things that they say. There's a debate over how to interpret the teaching to do what they tell you and not what they do. I think this is biting irony. I think he is mocking these guys right in front of their face. Hey, y'all, do what they, right, do what they do and do what they teach, yeah, right? Let me show you what they teach real quick. So you see, you don't actually do a single thing that they want you to do. He's ironically in an aggressive way, showing his hearers don't do a thing they say or do. They preach, but they don't practice. They, in the most biting of terms, he tells us in verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them uh, with their very finger. What he's referring to is the heart of the problem, is they, they make up lots of rules, Lots of rules that them as sort of professional leaders in the religion have the knowledge and the time and the resources to do all of these extra rules, right? The Bible has law that God has given that all of his people are bound to try really hard to keep, right? The Old Testament is full of good and right laws that God's people aim to keep. The Pharisees took all of that and they added a whole bunch more stuff. Right, the measurements and the exact time and right, the exact word counts, right? They're just piling up these laws that they themselves know and they themselves supposedly are good at keeping. But 
average Jewish man and woman, they don't, they don't have time for that, right? They don't have energy for that. They don't have resources to do that. They tie up these heavy spiritual burdens. People, it's like you come into church and I say, you know, you found your Christian life hard this last week. Man, I'm going to give you a whole lot of more rules that you got to keep this next week. They mount up the laws and the rules and then they refuse to help those who are crushed by them. What does it mean to be crushed? It's those who try to keep the laws. It's just too much. I can't keep it all straight sometimes. They pile it up and they don't even lift a finger to help those people who are crushed find their way to God. One author says of the Pharisees, they have multiplied the number of ways in which a man may offend God, but they have failed in helping him to please God. They've mounted up all the ways we can break the law and get in trouble with God. They don't do anything to help us get right with God. Because for them, it's not about God. It's not about where they stand or how they look before God. It's where they stand and how they look before others. Look at verse 5. Here's the most condemning verse in this opening section. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They do religious stuff so that other people will see them and think, wow, those guys know what they're doing. Those guys are religious. Those guys are impressive. Jesus gives us an example list of what some of these things are they do to be seen by others, right? They have phylacteries. These are these little boxes that would keep a little bit of the Old Testament law in them that they would strap onto their arms and onto their heads when they prayed. Most of the Jews of the day did that. These guys made sure that those symbols were bigger than everybody else's, right? The fringes on their religious garb. The men all had them, but these guys made sure they were extra long so that everybody could see how religious they were. They loved the place of honor in the synagogue, at the feast. Oh, and they really loved their titles. They loved to call each other rabbi, instructor, teacher. They loved these honorific titles they could give to each other. They loved the trappings of religion. They had the appearance of godliness. Now, what does that look like in us today? What do we do to appear godly? When I thumbed through some commentaries this morning, you know what they all did? They all blamed the other parts of Christianity, right? Like, well, we're Presbyterians. It's the Baptist fault, right? Or it's the Methodists. It's the Anglicans. They all do it wrong, right? That was the problem. Everybody's saying, well, it's the other people that look religious and not us, right? Somebody gave the example of those special chairs that pastors sit in before they preach. I, I, I thought, oh, boy, those pews got to go by next Sunday, right? What are those what are those things? I mean, is it an extra big Bible you carry in a church to make so everybody can see you? Is it super religious bumper stickers on your car? Is it those verses on your home, right? The, the famous one from Joshua. We have it in our home too, so no, I'm not slamming anybody. But you got the thing on the wall, but your life doesn't live it, right? What are those external trappings that we just want to be seen by others? And what, the heart of it is we're exalting ourselves. And that is a poisonous root that will lead in a moment we're going to see to a whole lot of woes before jesus gets there verse 8 he says but you to the root he provides the remedy 
If the root is exalting yourself, the remedy is humbling yourself. And he goes through these examples and he says, don't use these names, these titles. Don't use rabbi. We have one teacher. We're all brothers. Don't use father. We have one father in heaven. Don't use instructor. We have one instructor, the Christ. Now we find later in scripture, in in passages that are written after this, that some of those titles are still used. So it's not just uh, canceling out every imaginable title. It's speaking to the attitude behind the titles. It's taking on those names, those positions, those references that make us look pretty impressive. For Jesus, leadership in his body, in his organization, in his church, is not about exalting ourselves. It's about humbling ourselves. He turns from the leaders who exalt themselves and he says, everybody else but you, humble yourself. I want you to think with me for a second on what churches would look like, what churches, how they look different, those who exalt themselves and those that humble themselves. You've heard it prayed. I've announced it. We're in a period of officer nominations here. We are praying for leaders who humble themselves, not who exalt themselves. Not who have the showy trappings of religion, but maybe those who are hardly even noticed. I mean, think about a church that's full of leaders who exalt themselves. What's that church going to look like? It's going to look pretty impressive, right? It's going to look pretty showy. It's going to look pretty good from the outside. And Jesus tells us, however, it is empty. It is shallow. It is hypocrisy. For the church that is led by leaders who humble themselves who put themselves not first but last, who despise the trappings of religion, that church is not going to look worldly, exalted, and impressive. It's going to look pretty humble. It's going to look pretty lowly. It's going to look poor and ordinary. But in God's grace, it's healthy. It's deep. It's loved and led by Jesus, who humbled himself through leaders who humble themselves. Do not follow them who exalt themselves, but rather, but you, Jesus says, humble yourself. What happens if they continue on the path of exalting themselves? What happens when a tree has a poisonous root? Well, it bears bad fruit. That's what we see, secondly, not just bad fruit. We see deceptive fruit, fruit that looks good, but it's fake. It's empty. From warnings of the poisonous root, we move to woes on the deceptive fruit. Here comes the seven famous woes. Seven because it's the complete number. Seven because Jesus is bringing complete judgment on the temple. And on the leaders there in Jerusalem. This is sort of the opposite of the beginning of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you, woe is you. And woe is sort of, it's sort of sadness, right? We can feel bad for, oh, woe is me or woe is you, right? It's sort of almost a compassionate word. This is not so much compassionate, it's more judicial. I want you to think of these verses taking place in a courtroom. And here's the pronouncement of guilt and judgment. 
and is preceded each time by the condemning word, woe. Let me show you some of the deceptive fruit that Jesus points out. We're going to take these seven. We're going to break them up. We're going to put them in pairs, kind of lined up thematically in pairs. The first two woes show us the first fruit. It's blocking heaven. That's the fruit. They block the gates of heaven. You've already heard me reference this as we prepared to sing that opening hymn. Look at the first woe, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They look like they're showing the way to heaven because they have given a long list of what to do to get in. So they look really religious. They appear to be opening the doors of heaven, but they're really slamming it shut in people's faces, in their own face too, because the list is so big and is so long, they can't even get in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You see these pair with each other, right? They shut the gate of heaven and they fling wide open the path to hell. In their religiosity. In the face of the poor and the needy, in those who are beat down, on the head of the bruised reed, they slam shut the door and fling wide the path to hell. Do you see, as Jesus is pointing out, they appear one thing, the reality is so, so different. The reality is the opposite. In woe three and four, we encounter another fruit. The fruit here is distorting scripture. Their poisonous root of exalting themselves has borne the fruit of them not following God's word, not understanding God's word, not obeying God's word, instead distorting it. These two woes are complicated. Bear with me. Verses 16 to 22, woe number three. The context here, you'll remember from Sermon on the Mount, is swearing of oaths, which we're not really that used to today. But the debate that was going on uh, within the temple and within the leadership was what types of lo- uh, um, excuse me, vows, not woes, what types of vows are more serious than others? And like, which ones can you not break and which ones can you really, really not break? And maybe if you swear by the temple, it's not really that bad, but the gold of the temple is worse. The altar is not that bad, but the gift on the altar is worse. You remember when you were a kid, you were trying to talk about how serious you were about how you're going to do something. And you said, I I promise, I swear on my mother's life, right? That's like how serious, nobody else said that? Okay, I said that a lot. I swear, that's how serious I was. I swear on my mother's life. But imagine if somebody said, look, I swear on my third cousin twice removes life, right? I'm going to do it. That... uh, You see the difference between those types of vows, okay? So the Pharisees and the scribes are sitting around making a ranking and list of which vows are more serious than other vows. Can you imagine if you came to church this week and Jim and Wilson and I are sitting back there ranking types of vows? On the surface, looks pretty impressive, doesn't it? Man, those guys know their stuff. Those guys know their vows. Jesus, as he always does, on the surface, he 
condemns them because they don't even understand scripture. Your yes is your yes and your no is your no. Doesn't matter what you vowed on. It all relates back to God. Keep your word. He says that in Matthew 5. That's not the real problem. That's the surface problem. The deeper problem is the leaders don't know what to do with the scriptures. The guys who are supposed to teach it make a mockery of it. They are mishandling the scripture. Same problem in the next woe. Woe number four. It's probably the most famous one, right? It's right there in the middle. But three before, three after, it's probably the most uh, kind of uh, serious one. Woe number four begins at verse 23. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The law teaches a lot of things. Some things, Jesus tells us here, are more weighty than others. They are lighter matters of the law. It doesn't mean it's not still serious. But we run the risk of offending God if we prioritize the lighter matters. Right? What they're debating over is bringing in the tithe. Now, it's good and right, Old and New Testament, to tithe. Right? To bring in that percentage to give to, to God's work, right? God's institutions, God's body, God's church. But they're sitting here debating tithing on the mint, right? We grew some mint. I picked some mint last night. I didn't pick nine leaves and say, I got to save that tent leaf, tent leaf of mint to bring to church tomorrow, right? But these guys are obsessing over it. Now you can see how religious this looks. Man, those guys are serious about their tithe. You know what they're not serious about? Justice and mercy and faith. Jesus says, in one sense, look, guys, the law is binding. It's right and good to keep all of God's law. Let's major on the majors. But the deeper problem here is the leaders have neglected the very central thrust of Scripture. You can't get any closer to the meaning and purpose of God's word than his justice and his mercy that me and the person of Jesus that we follow by faith. And yet they have neglected the very heart of God. These are the leaders. You see the fruits of distorting scripture. The next fruit is pretty cut and dry. Woe number five and woe number six. This is faking righteousness. Now this is, these are the cups that are dirty on the inside, but they're clean on the outside. These guys were pros at discussing and debating laws and rules of cleanliness. The cup's empty. But it is filthy on the inside, but the outside looks good. Same thing for the tombs. Tombs were whitewashed. They looked clean, right? They were sort of sparkling. And yet what's on the inside of a tomb? It's not just dirty. It is unclean. It is dead. Verse 28, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outward appearance versus inward reality. Finally, this culminates in the seventh woe, the fruit of rejecting God. Of rejecting God. What the Pharisees and the scribes were doing is they were building tombs or monuments to the martyred prophets. Right? Right? So they know in their history, certain prophets have been faithful and got 
brought God's word, but they were killed and martyred and rejected when they came. So the Pharisees of Jesus' day are saying, we're not like our fathers. We wouldn't have done that to the good guys unless build these fancy tombs and these impressive monuments so everybody knows we're innocent. Jesus says, wait, who killed them? Your fathers? Yeah, you stand condemned too. Your very actions condemn you. And then comes this this haunting line. Look at verse 32. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. The image is of a measuring cup. You know, just a measuring cup. It's got what? Eight ounces on it. All those different measurements and you pour liquid in and it goes up to a certain level and then you know when it's full and it's time to use it, right? Jesus is saying that God has a measuring cup that is being filled up by the guilt of his people. And he's saying, your fathers have filled up that measuring cup. And you know what, guys? Why don't you just fill it up as well? You see the biting sarcasm in his voice. He tells them, verse 34, of the scribes and the prophets and the wise men whom they have killed and crucified. How that righteous blood is filling up the measure of the cup of God's wrath. He even gives two examples of Abel and Zechariah. Abel, the first righteous man, the first death at all, the beginning, Cain and Abel, right? Zechariah here, the last one at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 24. That was the end of the Old Testament Bible they were using at the time. Jesus says from the first to the last, from A to Z, from day one up until now, your fathers have been adding up guilt after guilt. You remember the Garden of Eden. You remember the, the words to the serpent and to Eve that there would be two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And they would progress down through history until eventually the animosity between the two would grow to such an extent that her seed would crush the head of his seed. Cain and Abel is the first battle between those two. And on and on throughout history. And Jesus says at this moment, he looks at the temple and Jerusalem and Israel and their leaders. And he says, you are the seed of the serpent. From A to Z, up until now, you are filling up the cup of guilt that it might pour out in the wrath of God. Before we see that pouring out, we need to remember that God is not flippant in bringing his wrath. God is not impatient in coming to bear on the sins of humanity. No, if anything, from A to Z, these verses tell us God's imminent patience that year after year, Sinner after sinner, generation after generation, king after king, people after people. God sends his messengers and his prophets and his word and his gospel and his promises over and over and over again. Do you see this filling up has taken centuries because of the patience of God? And yet verse 36, Jesus says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is it, he says. 
This is the last drop, and the cup is full. The rejection of Jesus is the final drop in the guilt of God's own covenant people. And it will come upon his generation. I want you to see finally in this text, the harvest. There's a root, there's fruit, and then there's a harvest. It's not a good harvest. It's a bitter harvest. Verses 37 and 39. What we see finally is weeping for the bitter harvest. The fruit of deception is ripe. And now it will be harvested. We see in this final paragraph two contrasts. On the one side, we see the willingness of Jesus to gather in his people. Remember the parable of the tenants a few weeks ago, back in chapter 21. The vineyard and the master and the tenants are supposed to grow the vineyard and bring the fruit to the master. And the master sends his servants and they kill the servants. He sends some more and they kill the servants. These are the prophets. Then he sends his son and they kill his son. That's it. That's what Jesus is saying right now. I'm the son. I'm the final one to be sent. I'm the final one that you will reject. But do you not hear in the voice of Jesus his deep love for Jerusalem? After all of these woes, you'd think he'd slam the door and walk out. But no, he's brought in infinite compassion and mercy. To cry out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We just sang in Psalm 122 the beauty of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now Jesus sees that city that he loves. And with lament and weeping, he cries out for her. He compares himself to a mother hen. Mother hen that will protect her, her brood, right? who spread out her wings to protect those under her, but more importantly, the tenderness of a mother hen to draw them in, to keep them safe, to to protect them. How willing is Jesus to gather his people? Well, he will say it, and unlike the Pharisees, he will do it. He will humble himself all the way to the cross, all the way to spread his arms, to cover his people from the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the cross. That he, that tender mother hen, humbling himself to the cross and to the grave, that he, with outstretched arms, would protect you and me from the righteous wrath of God. Despite this, despite this Savior, despite this infinite patience of the Father, Jesus shows us the opposite in these final verses. The end of verse 37, you were not willing. The Savior is willing to die for his people. They're not willing to be gathered. They're not willing to repent. They are not willing to believe. They have rejected everyone else. It's time to reject Jesus. He says, your house is left to you desolate. The temple, the house of God where God's presence is supposed to be with his people, will be left desolate. And he will leave Jerusalem. Remember when he told his uh, disciples, when he sent them out, they go to a city, doesn't receive them, shake the dust off your feet and move on. That's what he's doing to Jerusalem of all places. 
He is dusting his feet off. He is leaving the temple. He is moving on. And his one final word, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've heard that. Where have we heard that? The triumphal entry. The crowds loved it. The leaders hated it. He says, I've come once. The humble have received me. They have believed. They have trusted me. And I'm coming again. This time he's not coming humble on a donkey. He's coming on a war horse. How will you greet him? Because everyone will greet him. He is either the welcomed king for whom our heart waits and yearns for, or he is the consuming judge. He is the one who we have rejected time and time and time again. Hear the warnings and the woes and the weeping this morning. Flee empty religion. Humble yourself. Come in faith and our Savior, like that mother hen, will gather you into his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we not be counted among those who pile up the guilt that brings on your wrath. May we instead be counted as those whose guilt has been wiped away, whose sin has been forgiven. Lord, we greet you today. We sing your hosannas. We profess, blessed are you, comes in the name of the Lord. And Father, humble us to know Christ. Shatter our masks of hypocrisy. We would stand in and through and by the cross of Jesus alone. We pray it all in his precious name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn 431. As we reflect on how we as guilty as them, how can it be that we stand forgiven in the blood of Jesus? And can it be 431? Would you stand with me as we sing?